by a show of hands, uh, please let me know how many of you speak more than one language if you are bilingual. Fantastic. You got the memo. When you moved to San Diego, somebody clued you in. You have to be bilingual to mingle. That's what they say. If you're going to live in San Diego, it's such a multicultural city, you have to know more than one language. And if you're going to live in the South Bay, most hope that that language is Spanish. Now, when I grew up here, it wasn't so. But when I returned, I was fascinated. Everywhere I go, <clears throat> south of the 54, I'm addressed in Spanish first, everywhere. Target, <laughs> uh, gas stations, everywhere. It's fascinating. Um, lucky for me, I understand Spanish. But if you don't understand Spanish, you're going to be like, am I still, is this still the U.S.? You're probably going to ask yourself. Uh, but it's kind of cool when you can speak more than one language. If you're going just above the 54, you might actually need an additional language. Anybody know what that is? Tagalog, that's right. National City is the hotbed of uh, Tagalog. Filipino um, population there is great. It's fantastic uh, restaurants. And if you're going to live in San Diego, it's better if you know some of those. If you move on further up, other languages might be more familiar. And if you're a person who likes uh, learning different languages, San Diego is a great place to be. You can speak Portuguese downtown. That's right. There's a lot of Brazilians downtown, Brazilian restaurants. Fogo de Chão, anybody? Nobody. Okay, good. <clears throat> uh, I, myself, uh, love uh, the idea of learning and studying different languages. In fact, I learned the allure of different languages when I was very young, probably around five or six, I was traveling in my mother's home country in Brazil. I, I was born in Bolivia, grew up there, but from time to time we would visit my mom's relatives in Brazil. And I happened to be there in Brazil. Like I said, I wasn't in school yet. I was about five or six. And there were kids in a neighborhood that I was talking to, and they were speaking to me in Portuguese, which I understood a little bit. And they said, so you're from, you're from Bolivia. You're from, you speak Spanish. And I said, yes, of course. But see, for Brazilians, Portuguese, uh, Spanish is not that impressive. In fact, all Brazilians think that Spanish is Portuguese poorly spoken. Um, and all Spanish speakers think Portuguese is Spanish poorly speaking. So not that impressive. And so they would say, yeah, who cares? And I said, well, 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 I have relatives in the U.S. And they're like, ooh, do you speak English? And I was like five or six, and I was like, Yes. And they were like, oh, oh. And then they got their friends. Hey, this kid knows English. Even to this day in Brazil, English is one of the most coveted languages. In fact, they spent thousands of dollars to send their kids here to the U.S. to learn how to speak English. So there I was, five or six. And yes, I had seen an English book. Anybody seen the Dick and Jane series? Anybody with me there? Oh, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I had seen a book there. I had read one or two words. And they're saying, oh, 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 speak, say something in English. And I looked around, and then I said to myself, they're not going to understand what I'm going to say. So I made something up. I was like, rah, rah. I don't even know what came out of my mouth. And I'm like, ooh. And I came to realize, man, it is cool to speak different languages, right? Think about it. Ever met somebody who can speak four or five or six different languages? Wow, that's impressive. The allure of speaking different languages is so cool because it seems to reveal like there's a whole another side of us, like a double or secret life. 
Maybe you're a secret agent from another country. It also opens doors to places, people, and cultures that normally would be closed. The ability to speak different languages. It is something to be proud of for sure and also something to aspire to. But as it was for me when I was six, five or six, it can also be a slippery slope into wanting to be something that you are not. Today we're talking about languages to begin with, and I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This will be a familiar passage to most of you, and undoubtedly as I begin to read it, you will recognize it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's begin with verse 1. I'll read along. You can follow along with me. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you didn't bring your own or have one on your, on your smartphones. And it says this. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You recognize it? If you do, say amen. amen. Yeah, you've heard this before, probably at a wedding somewhere. Might be even some of yours favorite texts. But I was concentrated on the first part of this verse. If I speak in the tongues of men, and I'm in parentheses here, in my, in my version it says oral languages. See, theologians, uh, students of uh, its original language say this is possibly referring not to the actual tongue, but possibly to the languages of men. Do you know how many different languages there are in the world? Anybody want to take a guess? Anybody? Just throw a number out there. See if it sticks. 8,000? Oh, that's pretty good. According to the Linguistic Society, there are 6,909 distinct languages in the world. Can you imagine that? That's a lot. And here you were proud with two or three. Poof. <laughs> languages, people, groups. Ever since the dawn of time, when God introduced the concept of languages, there has been just as many as there are groups. There are distinct languages. And the Bible talks here about the church of Corinth who was interested in languages. And Paul says, if I could speak languages, if I spoke the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And as I was studying and I was resting, I was trying to understand what is he referring to? Is it like me wanting to show off that I spoke English? No, what is he referring to? It turns out that the people at Corinth, the church at Corinth, this new Christian community at Corinth, were convinced that if they could speak a special tongue, a special language, it would give evidence that they, they were somehow special, chosen by God, imbued with these gifts and abilities. So they each sought and pursued this ability to speak in what we would call tongues. Y'all know because you're studying of the word in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the people of God, the Bible describes them as, as being able to speak in tongues. But it also says that as, as they spoke, people could understand in their own language. People from different parts of the world, different countries, different nations, different people groups could understand what these men and women were saying because God gave them ability to communicate in a language not their own but known to others. And ever since then, people have been fascinated with this ability, especially within the Christian church con context. And as it turns out, in the, in, in the church of Corinth, there were many who wanted desperately to be able to speak in these languages to give proof or evidence that they were chosen, special, blessed by God. And yet Paul says, 
even if you had that ability, and not just languages, earthly ones, but he says, but if you, even if you could speak the tongues of angels. Have you ever communicated with an angel? Don't answer that. Can you speak their language? Paul says, even if I could speak other worldly languages, even if I could do that, he says, but if I don't have love, I am just a noisemaker. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just noise. Just noise. Paul is trying to address something here and, and hopefully it will become clear as we continue to talk about what is happening in the church that day, but I think it also relates to us in today's context. He's addressing the desires of people's hearts and in their church context, they wanted to, they desired to be noticed. They wanted to be identified. They wanted to be recognized as having certain abilities above others. They were interested in being known. And Paul says, as important as you think that is, if you don't have love, then you're just a noisemaker. Even if you could, you are just a noisemaker. This is a very familiar uh, passage because it's so poetic and the way that Paul writes it out, the way that he sort of unfolds the, the, the chapter here is poetic and it's fascinating and it has a rhythm to it. And I think he's driving at a point that sometimes get lost, gets lost in the poetry. Read along with me. He says, And if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Pretty cool, right? Poetic. What is he getting at? I was wrestling with this part of the text in preparation for today, and it occurred to me that the gift of prophecy is something very uniquely valued in our Adventist faith tradition. Amen? I mean, we owe our heritage, our essence, our identity to this particular gift demonstrated in the life of Ellen White. And we value it and treasure it. But it's not just us. If you read the rest of chapter 12, 13, and 14, Paul says the gift of prophecy is a unique blessing for the church of God. In fact, he charges everyone listening, including us, to desire it. But what is the gift of prophecy? According to Paul, it is the ability to receive direct messages from God, which then can be passed on to God's people to build them up. See, in chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. And these are not like uh, special abilities given to you for your own gain. But spiritual gifts have to do with things that, according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit gives to each one of you, each one of us, in order to bless the church when we bring all these gifts together. And that amongst these gifts is the gift of prophecy. The ability to receive from God a specific message meant for us at this time. It is that gift that God has used throughout the Bible to reveal his plans to his people. Through the prophets, those who had the gift of prophecy. And although we believe it is part of our heritage as a people, and although we believe it's something that we treasure and value, the truth is, we don't think anyone has it. 
but we wish we did. And yet Paul says, even if I have the gift of prophecy, and he continues, and even if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I love that too. You know why? Because that's a big deal for us too as Adventists. I was telling first service, you know, we, the Adventist church, is very proud of the fact that we have one of the most sophisticated and uh, um, uh, I should say most successful educational systems worldwide um, as a private institution. Our schools, colleges, universities, secondary schools, all over the world. We're very proud of the fact that education is a significant goal, and it is for us, too. Do you know that every year we, the Bonita Valley Church, invest heavily in our local San Diego Academy? That we sponsor many, many kids, not just here, but in local colleges and other Adventist schools. And we invest a, a huge amount of money. In fact, we're one of the most uh, uh, teacher-friendly churches. We have a lot of Senior Academy teachers. And we believe in this Adventist education. We invest heavily on it. Because we have been told, and it's part of our DNA, to believe that knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge, information, education, is what will set you free, will elevate you, allow you to rise. And we want all our kids to be smart. Amen? We want all our kids to learn. And that's good. But Paul says, even if I could extrapolate that, and even if I knew everything there is to know, and I could solve all the world's mysteries and all the world's riddles, even if I could do that, but have not love, I am nothing. And then he uses another phrase that I told for service is really bothering me. He says, if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I, I struggle with this because in my heart I'm saying, is it possible to have faith in such a way that you could move mountains, but do it without actually loving? Is it possible? See, the gift of faith is also illustrated in chapter 12, where God says that there are some in our community who have this special gift, the ability to continue to believe even in the absence of evidence or hope. Faith. They continue to believe. You might know someone who has this gift. They will pray and pray and pray when the rest of us give up. And eventually, mountains move. But Paul says, even if I have that gift, but I have not love, I am nothing. It's very poetic and yet kind of disturbing, don't you think? Because he's beginning to describe, uh, in some ways, some of the things that we as a faith community have been aspiring to. To understand prophecy, Daniel and Revelation, to educate, to have knowledge, to have faith. But Paul says, even if we accomplish those goals, but love is missing, it's worth nothing. And that, my friends, is very challenging, I believe. He goes on, look, chap chapter 13, verse 3, and he says, And if I give all that I possess to the poor, and I surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 
been wondering in my head, in my heart, what people were thinking as this letter was read. See, as it turns out, scholars believe that in, in the city of Corinth, the well-to-do, the wealthy, would give alms or, or give away gifts, small tokens of their fortune, to the needy. But what they would do is they would gather people at their gates, not in their homes, but at their gates, just at the edges of their property, and they would pass out stuff. And they would dole out alms, a little bit of money, or a little bit of things to as many people as possible. And according to uh, theologians who've done done the research, the idea was that if they could give to as many people, those many people would speak of them and would say, oh, they are very generous, very generous. They were being charitable, but the real desire was to be recognized for it. They were less concerned with the welfare of those receiving the alms. They were more concerned about the recognition of having given the alms. So Paul says, and even if I were to give all that I possess, and then he says, even if I were to surrender my body to the flames, theologians also tell us that if people were being punished that day or in those days, they would most likely not be burned. They would might have been stoned or beheaded. But Paul chooses burning, they think, because it's one of the most painful ways to die. And Paul is saying here, even if I willingly suffered, but I have not loved, then I gain nothing. So what is he talking about, and what does this have to do with us? Is it possible to be charitable but have not loved? Is it possible to be involved in service and do good things for the less fortunate but not do it out of love? Is it possible? Do you guys know what the largest charitable organization in the world is? Anybody? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yes. Uh, they are uh, currently the largest charitable organization in the world, uh, some $43 billion strong. But you know who's number two? It's an organization that owns IKEA. Anybody shop at IKEA? Stuff is probably broken by now. Yes, they are the largest, second largest uh, charitable organization in the world. It's kind of complex in a Dutch system. The charitable organization actually owns part of IKEA. But you know what's fascinating? Uh, <clears throat> in 2006, The Economist magazine estimated that at the time they were the largest charitable organization, 36 billion U.S. dollars. But according to The Economist, although they were the largest organization, they were also the least generous. Is it possible to do charitable service without love? See, Paul is getting at something that, I mean, sounds kind of weird in the world stage, but actually is true even for each one of us. Paul is trying to address things that are 
particular and unique to each one of our hearts. See, <clears throat> more than just what's on the surface, more than what can be seen or measured, Paul is addressing what is unseen, what is actually in our hearts. And as I've been wrestling with these three verses, I'm asking Paul, what are you getting at? What are you trying to tell me? Because we are not, we are not a community obsessed with speaking in tongues or, or trying to learn the language of angels. No, we are not a community uh, just hopelessly pursuing the gift of prophecy. And yes, yes, we might do charitable service here. We might go to the food bank and do a few things, but we're not trying to define, what are you getting at? And I believe that what God is, is, is saying to us and to me here in 1 Corinthians is that he wants to challenge the way we assign value. He wants to challenge the way you and I define and determine what is of value, what is truly important in these three areas. The first one I'm going to call your platform. See, in their day and age, the Church of Corinth was listening to this letter. They determined their value, their importance by who could speak in these tongues. So like me, some of them just babbled when I was five and six in hopes that they would be recognized, they would be seen. But I think the same temptation exists for us today. Everyone in our culture, you included, wants a voice. And with today's advancement of, of technology, everyone has a voice. Hmm? In fact, our voice can reach so much further than ever in the past. With just a few types and a few clicks, we can put stuff out there. Do you know that our children, our youth, our teenagers live completely immersed in this world? And they are overly concerned with their social platform, their social presence. But we're no different. We use our voice to draw attention to ourselves or to distract attention from ourselves. We use our voice, our platform, to raise our profile. And Paul is saying, even if you could successfully do that and give yourself the largest platform, but if in your heart your ultimate goal was self-centered, then you're just making noise. Think about it. Think about all the noise that you and I are subjected to in the world today. Some from, you know, the loud political mouths out there. But some from the people right around us. But what if we could change that? What if those of you who have followers on Instagram or Snapchat or, or even Facebook... What if you could use all that influence, all that reach to build people up rather than to tear them down? To bless people forward rather than to claw them back? What if we could use our voice? Imagine that for just a second, that if everything that you said was motivated by love rather than selfishness or anger or distrust, Imagine that for a minute. Imagine that for the rest of this week, everything that you said that came out of your mouth was because you loved the people you're talking to and those that you're addressing. 
wouldn't the world be different? Wouldn't the people around you feel the difference? Paul is challenging us to understand here that love makes the difference. That stuff that's in our hearts, the motives matter. Then he says in, in verse 2, the gift of prophecy, faith of mountains, knowledge and mystery. And I think what he's getting at here is another thing that you and I use to assign value, especially in a faith community like us, our religiousness. How much we know, how much we've studied, how many mysteries we have solved, biblically or religiously. And Paul says, it doesn't matter how much you know. If you don't love, I am nothing, he says. Without love, it's worth nothing. And you know, I think that's something that you and I know instinctively. Uh, some of us, especially those that are my peers from growing up. We've had so many pe people yell at us about the truth when we were convinced they did not care about us, that it just sounded like nothing. You with me? And God is challenging our church not to repeat that mistake. That as we welcome and as we bless and as we empower a new generation, we wouldn't just be obsessed with yelling at them. Rather that we would choose first to love them for their sake, not ours. Paul says, if I can have the gift and I, all these things, if I, if I was so successful at this religious thing, if I paid all my tithe, if I was selected as elder, if I was lead pastor of the Benita Church and I was preaching every Sabbath, but in my heart, in my heart, I'm not motivated by love for others, then I accomplish nothing. I am nothing. I have become nothing. Religion, your beliefs in and of themselves are nothing without it. It is love that makes the difference. And the last one, he says, is service. You see, some of us are well-intentioned but have been convinced that we have to do in order to prove value. And if we don't do, then we are not of value. But he says, even if you do it all, give all you possess, surrender, suffer even, but have not love, you gain nothing. See, friends, our purpose as a people is not to fabricate value. It isn't to create it by the things that we believe or say or do. Our purpose is to reflect value. Our purpose is to live out of the fact that we are loved, not in order to be loved. Because God is love and he loved us first before we knew any mysteries, before we had any gifts, before we could do any services. God already loved us. And we as his representatives on this earth are to share and reflect and bless other people with this love. It is not a love that must be earned. It is a love that simply is given freely. You know what we call that? Grace. And it's amazing. Wouldn't the world be different if you and I just chose to give it away rather than require it to be earned?
Wouldn't the world be different if we could move and act out of the love that we feel rather than requiring it before we act? See, I believe this is the new challenge for us. This is the new gift we're going to pass on to the generations. A new way of living. A new way of believing. One that is born out of the fact that we have been already loved. Out of the fact that we have been claimed. Out of the fact that we are sons and daughters. We don't have to earn any of that. God chose us first. We are his chosen people. He loved us. He loves us. We cannot earn it. We don't have to. We don't have to repay it. We never could anyway. We simply have to receive it and reflect it. Receive it and share it. And this is something that cannot be measured with human eyes. It is not something that can be valued in a human perspective. It is only something that you and God will know. It's what's in your heart. So I want you to ask yourself, what motivates you? When you're coming to church, when you're singing the songs, when you're praising God, what is motivating that? Is it because you want to earn your place in God? You want to atone for your sins? Not necessary. Or is it because you recognize that God loves you as you are? Sin and all. And that what he's really dying and did die for is so that you might finally accept that and walk into his open arms. Religion will not supersede love. Everything that we do at church, as a church comes from the fact that we are loved, not the other way around. And any good act, any act of goodwill, any act of service must be born out of our gratitude for God's love, not because we're trying to earn His approval or affection or blessings. God's love is available to all of us right here, right now. And his love does not fail, cannot be earned, bought. It can only be received and then shared. Without it, we got nothing. But praise be to God that we have it. Amen? Praise be to God that we can claim it, that it is ours. He has given it to us, evidenced by the death of his son on the cross. Would you stand and sing with us as we proclaim that God's love never fails?